This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast. This week we honor the year in music for 2004 along with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2004. We also make the case for putting Rick James into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, plus our Spotlight Hall of Fame is the ARIA Hall of Fame in Melbourne, Australia. Before we get going with the podcast, like everyone tells you, please like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you'll know when these podcast episodes drop, which is usually every Thursday. Now, on to this week's episode. The year was 2004. The only things that people seemed to be talking about that year were Britney Spears marrying and divorcing her childhood friend Jason Allen Alexander, all in three days, mind you, and then later in the year, her marrying dancer Kevin Featherline. Also that year, Ashley Simpson lip-synced her performance on Saturday Night Live, which ended horribly when the show ended up playing the absolute wrong track which left her on stage looking just a little bit embarrassed. Also, 2004 was the year of the famous or infamous Super Bowl wardrobe malfunction event with Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson. That was on February 1st. Other events of the year included opera star Luciano Pavarotti performing in his final opera, Elton John starting his Las Vegas residency at Caesars Palace, Brian McFadden leaving Westlife, Clint Lowry leaving Seven Dust, the massive Rock in Rio concert festival event taking place, Paul Rogers joining Queen for a little while at least, the bands The Killers and Velvet Revolver both debuting that year, as did the Jazz at Lincoln Center performing venue, and also the now infamous Dave Matthews Band tour bus dumping their raw sewage into the Chicago River, hitting a tour boat, by the way, that was in the absolute worst place at the absolute worst time. Bands that formed in 2004 included the Body Rockers, Bring Me the Horizon, Ryan Adams and the Cardinals, Cascada, Camel Fat, Allie and AJ, Digitalism, Fort Minor, Nero, Pompeii, Panic at the Disco, and Paramore. Bands who either broke up until their inevitable reunions or announced their hiatus included All About Eve, The Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, No Doubt, Atomic Kitten, Bachman Turner Overdrive, Orbital, Concrete Blonde, Jan and Dean, Jane's Addiction, Sixpence None the Richer, Matchbox 20, Creed, King Crimson, and Yes. Bands that got back together for a little while included Destiny's Child, New York Dolls, Megadeth, and Restless Heart. Artists who were born in 2004 included Grace Vanderwall and Mackenzie Ziegler. Artists who passed away in 2004 included Ray Charles, Rick James, Johnny Ramone of the Ramones, Laura Branigan, Sasha Destell, Jimmy Hassel of the First Edition, Cornelius Bumpus of the Doobie Brothers, Dimebag Daryl of Pantera, Peggy DeCastro of the DeCastro Sisters, John McHugh of Sushi and the Banshees, Jan Barry of Jan and Dean, Nikki Sullivan of Buddy Holly and the Crickets, Felix Haug of Double, 
Arthur Kane of the New York Dolls, Michael Connor of Pure Prairie League, Bruce Palmer of Buffalo Springfield, Alex Soria of the Nils, rappers Old Dirty Bastard, Billboard, and Mac Dre, band leader Artie Shaw, jazz drummer Elvin Jones, record producer Corthon, and composers Jerry Goldsmith and Elmer Bernstein. The biggest selling album of 2004 was Usher's Confessions. Other artists who had big albums that year included Kenny Chesney, Green Day, Nora Jones, Avril Lavigne, U2, Gwen Stefani, Anastasia, Maroon 5, Evanescence, Ashley Simpson, Eminem, the Jay-Z and Linkin Park collaboration, Collision Course, and Tim McGraw. The biggest single of 2004 was Usher's Yeah. Other big singles of the year were Ciara's Goodies, Snoop Dogg's Drop It Like It's Hot, Avril Lavigne's My Happy Ending, Alicia Keys' If I Ain't Got You, and also My Boo, her duet with Usher, Jaquan's Tipsy, Mario's I Don't Wanna Know, which has now been remade as The Weeknd's Creepin', Fat Joe and Terror Squad's Lean Back, Ashley Simpson's Pieces of Me, and Nina Sky's Move Your Body. In country music, the biggest singles were released by Toby Keith, Tim McGraw, Keith Urban, Terry Clark, George Strait, Montgomery Gentry, Phil Vassar, Rascal Flatts, Lone Star, Gary Allen, Gretchen Wilson, and Alan Jackson. The biggest albums were released by Keith Urban, Rascal Flatts, Gretchen Wilson, Big and Rich, Jimmy Buffett, and Tim McGraw, Alan Jackson, Kenny Chesney, along with greatest hits albums by George Strait and Shania Twain. In dance music, the club play charts were, as usual, dominated by pop and R&B artists. This time around, the crossover artists were Britney Spears, Duran Duran, Annie Lennox, Elton John, Dido, Madonna, Simply Red, Janet Jackson, Beyonce, and George Michael. Quote-unquote legit dance artists who made the top of the dance charts included Goldfrapp, the legendary late great Frankie Knuckles, Curtis Mantronic, Christine W., Junior Jack, Robbie Rivera, Dirty Vegas, along with Eric Pridd's version of Steve Winwood's hit song Valerie, now called Call On Me. The EDM revolution would not hit for almost another eight years or so. In hip-hop, some of the biggest albums were released by Eminem, D12, Kanye, Lloyd Banks, Nelly, Young Buck, The Beastie Boys, Ludacris, and a Tupac posthumous release called Loyal to the Game. The biggest selling one for 2004 actually dropped in 2003. It was Outkast, Speaker Box, The Love Below, especially after they won the 2003 Grammy Award for Album of the Year. Some of the biggest singles in hip-hop were Drop It Like It's Hot from Snoop Dogg and Pharrell Williams, Outkast The Way You Move, and Jay-Z's Dirt Off Your Shoulder and 99 Problems, along with songs by Twista and Kanye, Nelly and Tim McGraw, Lloyd Banks, Fabulous, and Lil Wayne. In Latin music, Daddy Yankee released the biggest-selling Latin album of the decade, Barrio Fino. The album helped reggaeton crash headlong into the mainstream at that point. The most critically acclaimed Latin artist of the year, though, was Alejandro Sanz. Other big Latin artists of the year included Los Temerarios, Paulina Rubio, Juanes, Grupo Climax, Luis Miguel, Mark Anthony, Los Tigres del Norte, 
Adan Sanchez, and Intocable. At the Grammy Awards for Music from 2004 it was the year of Ray Charles, who put out an album the same year that he passed away, and who also won Album and Record of the Year, while John Mayer won Song of the Year and Best New Artist went to Maroon 5 over Josh Stone and Kanye West, go figure. At the American Music Awards, Usher and Sheryl Crow were the big winners. At the Billboard Music Awards, Usher won Artist of the Year. And at the MTV Video Music Awards, Outkast won Video of the Year for Hey Ya. At the Eurovision Singing Contest, which was held in Istanbul, Turkey, it was actually the Ukraine who won for the song Wild Dances. At the Tony Awards, Avenue Q won Best Musical and Assassins won Best Revival of a Musical. The Pulitzer Prize for Music for 2004 went to Paul Moravec for Tempest Fantasy, Steve Reich for Three Tales, and Peter Lieberson for Piano Concerto No. 3. Musically at the Academy Awards, Finding Neverland won Best Score, while a song by Jorge Drexler from The Motorcycle Diaries won Best Song. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony was held on March 5, 2004 at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. During that ceremony, the hall inducted Rolling Stone magazine editor Jan Wenner into the non-performer Life Achievement Award category. The ceremony is perhaps best remembered for Prince's blistering guitar solo on the song While My Guitar Gently Weeps, which was played in honor of George Harrison, who was inducted into the performers category, along with Jackson Brown, The Dells, Traffic, ZZ Top, Bob Seger, and this next artist. Prince Rogers Nelson was born on June 7, 1958, and was a product of musical parents. Prince's nickname was Skipper throughout childhood because he hated the name Prince. Prince also suffered from epilepsy when he was younger and often had seizures. The disease didn't stop Prince from being involved in sports, including playing basketball. He also studied ballet, which definitely helped with his dancing skills in his videos and on stage. Prince's parents divorced when he was 10 years old, and the rest of his childhood was spent bouncing around back and forth between parents and new step-parents, like much kids of divorce do these days. Prince also found himself gravitating towards music, having written his first song when he was 7 years old. He was rumored to have learned to play at least 10 instruments very well by the time he hit his 20s. By the time he was 19, Prince was signed to a managerial contract, and based on the strength of his demo tape, Prince signed with Warner Brothers Records and released his first album, For You, on April 7, 1978, just two months shy of his 20th birthday. A little over a year later, Prince released his self-titled second album, which had the hit I Want to Be Your Lover and Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad. In 1980, he released the album Dirty Mind, which got him into just a little bit of trouble with songs like Head. It also got him an opening act spot on Rick James's tour. 1981's album Controversy spawned the hit of the same name, and around this time, Prince started forming side projects like The Time. Prince's double album, 1999, was released in 1982 and had the top 10 hits 1999, Little Red Corvette, and Delirious. 
Little Red Corvette was helped by being one of only two songs from black artists that MTV was playing in heavy rotation when the music video came out, the other video being Michael Jackson's Billie Jean. Still, five albums in five years was only the beginning. Prince was about to become a superstar only two years later. After his 1999 album, Prince decided that he wanted to make a movie that was very loosely based on his life. He called the movie Purple Rain. This album was the second album to also credit his band The Revolution, as they did help write some of the songs, and they were on the 1999 album. Certain songs have a bit of a history. Let's Go Crazy is probably the best crafted song about moral ethics ever to be made. The line towards the end about how pills, thrills, and daffodils will kill is kind of ironic now, considering the way that Prince passed away. The famous drum machine intro after the organs in the beginning is Prince's go-to drum machine at the time, the Lin LM-1. Take Me With You was supposed to be for his side project, Apollonia 6, but instead found its way onto the soundtrack. Contrary to popular belief, the female voice on the song is not Apollonia, nor is it Lisa and Wendy from the band. It's actually singer Jill Jones. Computer Blue was originally a 14-minute song, but got cut back. I'm sure the original version turned up on the special edition of the soundtrack if it hasn't already. Prince played all of the instruments on The Beautiful Ones and Darling Nikki, along with When Doves Cry. For Doves, he was trying to go with a different sound, so he pulled the bass line out of the song. I Would Die For You, Baby I'm a Star, and Purple Rain were all actually recorded a year before. At a benefit concert for the Minnesota Dance Theater on August 3, 1983 at the now-famous First Avenue Club that was in the movie, Prince debuted those three songs as well as his new guitarist, Wendy Melvoin. The title track for the album has its own history. According to the Revolution's keyboardist, Dr. Fink, Prince wanted to write a song that sounded almost like it could have come from Bob Seger. The band Journey, however, tells a different story. According to them, Prince called them up one day and mentioned that he had written a song that sounded a lot like their hit song, Faithfully. He wanted their blessing, so of course they wouldn't sue him. Not only did they give him their blessing once they heard the song, but they thanked him for asking them since a lot of bands had already ripped off their sound without even asking them first. And if you actually listen to both songs, Purple Rain and Faithfully Back to Back, you can kind of hear the similarities, especially in the chord changes. Purple Rain, the album, came out on June 25th, 1984, and spent 32 weeks on the Billboard album's top 10, taking the number one spot for 24 straight weeks. Purple Rain made rumpled pirate shirts a fashion trend, along with being the basis for a famous Seinfeld episode. It also gave Prince a lot of awards, including Grammy Awards, a Golden Globe, and an Academy Award for Best Music Score. It's also considered a classic album and one of the greatest albums ever made. In 1986, after Purple Rain, Prince started work with his group The Revolution on a couple new projects. The group was coming off of a run where they had put out three albums in three years. The aforementioned Purple Rain in 1984, Around the World in a Day in 1985, and Parade in 1986. 
Parade was his soundtrack to his movie Under the Cherry Moon. They were now working on a couple of new things. The first was going to be an album called Dream Factory. The second was going to be just Prince himself doing an alter ego named Camille, which was actually his singing voice sped up and pitched higher. Something happened along the way of doing those albums, though, and Prince ended up breaking up the revolution and got a new band. He continued work on his new album, still using a lot of the songs that he and the revolution had worked up. For some of the songs, he reworked the parts so that someone else could sing them. For a few, like Housequake, he kept the idea of using his alter ego voice. He had so many songs that he wanted to put out a triple album called Crystal Ball. His record label, Warner Brothers, didn't like that idea, so everybody compromised and decided to put out a double album instead. The album title was also changed from Crystal Ball to Sign of the Times. Sign of the Times, the album, was released on March 30, 1987 in England and March 31st in America. It spawned a concert film along with three big hits. The title track, Sign of the Times, You Got the Look with Sheena Easton, and I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man. The album was a top 20 hit in 14 different countries, including America, where it hit number six. It was the 47th biggest album in 1987, even though it wasn't a huge seller by superstar standards. It sold just over 1 million copies, but not much more, probably because it was a double album and thus priced much higher than your standard LP record at the time. A lot of critics consider it Prince's best work, although I'm still kind of partial to Purple Rain myself. After the success of Sign of the Times, Prince created new backup groups like the New Power Generation, another movie called Graffiti Bridge, a couple more albums that did pretty well, like Love Sexy, the soundtrack to Graffiti Bridge, along with the soundtrack to Tim Burton's 1989 Batman movie. In the mid-90s, Prince had very public fights with his record company, with him first going by his famous symbol as his name, changed on his birthday no less, then he left his record label Warner Brothers altogether and started his own record label. Eventually, he went back to Warner Brothers, but it did take a little while for them to mend fences. The 20th century was when Prince was a hit-making machine. And while he still put out albums, they were not as popular as his albums pre-2000. However, as the 21st century began, Prince became one of the most respected musicians along with revered status in the industry as a legend. His 2007 halftime show at the Super Bowl, complete with Rain actually coming down while he played the song Purple Rain, is considered by many to be the greatest halftime show of all time. During his surprise appearance at the 2015 Grammy Awards to present the Best Album Grammy, he was treated to an extra-long standing ovation and cheers. He also got that blistering guitar solo going that has gone down in history as being one of the greatest live guitar solos ever at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony in 2004. One last thing that you may not have realized about Prince was that even though he was a fashion icon, that cane he stylishly walked around with wasn't there for the look. See, Prince injured his hip from all that jumping around he used to do on stage, plus ballet when he was a kid. 
He had surgery to repair his hip and had started taking painkillers to deal with the pain. And as with a lot of people, he ended up addicted to the pills and he put his health in great jeopardy. On April 15, 2016, while flying back home to Minneapolis, Minnesota, Prince became unconscious on the flight. His flight was then diverted to Illinois, where he ended up in a hospital for treatment. Once released from the hospital, he went back home to his mansion at Paisley Park Studios in Minneapolis. He spent the next few days going around town, seeing a jazz performance, among many other things. But on April 22, 2016, Prince was supposed to see Dr. Howard Kornfeld, who specialized in painkiller addictions, in order to have a physical exam. On the morning of April 21, 2016, Dr. Kornfeld's son came by Paisley Park in order to give Prince the drug buprenorphine, which aids in opioid addiction withdrawals. By the time the doctor's son reached the house in the morning, Prince was found unresponsive in his elevator at Paisley Park. It was the doctor's son who made the frantic phone call to emergency authorities at 9.43 a.m. Even though the ambulance got there in less than 10 minutes, they couldn't bring Prince back to life because he had actually been dead in the elevator for at least six hours before then. Prince was pronounced dead at 10.07 a.m. April 21st, 2016. The official cause of death was an overdose of the painkiller fentanyl, which he was taking to deal with the hip pain. During an investigation into his death, authorities discovered that the fentanyl tablets that he had been taking were actually disguised as a generic form of the drug hydrocodone. Even though no criminal charges were ever brought concerning the illegal drugs, Prince's death, along with Tom Petty's death from painkillers in 2017, would help to put a public face on the dangers of painkiller addiction, especially concerning fentanyl and opioids. Prince's ashes are on display in an urn in the atrium of Paisley Park, which is now a museum, along with still being a recording studio. In his lifetime, Prince released 42 studio albums. Of those, 15 hit the top 10, with four of those hitting number one. Prince also released 106 singles. Of those, 19 hit the top 10, with five of those hitting number one. Prince was nominated for 32 Grammy Awards, winning seven of them, 12 MTV Video Music Awards, winning four of those, two Golden Globe Awards, winning one of those, and one Academy Award, winning it for the best score for Purple Rain. In total, he was nominated for 163 awards with 32 wins. Prince ranks 27th on Rolling Stone magazine's lists of greatest artists of all time. He's sold over 150 million albums. He's had albums put into the Library of Congress National Recording Registry. He's been inducted into at least six different halls of fame. And his song, Darling Nikki, off of the Purple Rain soundtrack, is one of the main reasons why we have parental advisory stickers put on record labels. See, at that time, Darling Nikki was being listened to by Tipper Gore's daughter. Tipper Gore 
was the wife of then-Senator Al Gore, soon to be Vice President Al Gore, under President Bill Clinton. Al Gore got a congressional committee together, yelled at a bunch of musicians, including John Denver for some weird reason, and that led to record labels putting parental advisory stickers on the records themselves rather than having legislation forced upon them to make them put parental advisory stickers on the record labels. Unfortunately, that also led to a lot of censorship as record stores and also Walmart refused to sell records that had parental advisory stickers on them. Basically a form of censorship. Presented for induction by Outcast and Alicia Keys, Prince Rogers Nelson, otherwise known as Skipper to his friends, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, class of 2014. Before we get to the rest of the podcast, we'd like to tell you about our other podcast, the Music History Today podcast. Every day we tell you what happened on that date in music history along with music releases, birthdays, and passings. So, if you like this podcast and want more music history, then please search the Music History Today podcast in audio or video form on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast from. This week, we're going to look at the case for putting the king of punk funk, Rick James, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Rick released 13 albums while he was alive. Of those, five hit the top 20 with 1981 Street Songs hitting number three. He also released 40 singles. Of those, five hit the top 40 with two of those hitting the top 20. On the R&B charts, though... Rick was king, with all but one of his albums hitting the top 40, including seven top tens and two of those hitting number one to go along with his 22 top 40 songs, with 13 going top 10. He wrote and produced chart-topping songs for other artists as well, like Tina Marie, The Temptations, The Mary Jane Girls, and Party All the Time for Eddie Murphy. Like a lot of funk rock artists, Rick's music has been sampled quite a bit. Most famously, MC Hammer taking Rick's song Super Freak for Hammer's song You Can't Touch This. Also, fun fact for you, Rick grew up in Buffalo, New York and lived for a time in nearby Toronto, Canada. While in Toronto, Rick was part of a band with Neil Young. Yes, that Neil Young. Rick had to quit the band because this was during the 1960s draft and Vietnam War era, and Rick was MIA from the U.S. military at the time. Aside from Rick's performing and producing career, he also influenced more than a few artists. His biggest one, of course, was Prince, to the point where Rick was upset with how much of Rick's style Prince was borrowing. Without Rick, Prince's style would have been completely different, no doubt. Rick also influenced Lenny Kravitz and Bruno Mars. So, with all that going in his direction, why might Rick never get into the hall? Well, 
There are two reasons, both of which have to do with the new morality purity test that the Hall seems to put towards artists these days. For instance, there was his time in jail for kidnapping and sexually assaulting a woman during a drug binge. Plus, there were his many, many drug arrests, including time in jail for a separate drug incident. Rick has been eligible for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame since 2004. And while the sexual assault and drug issues seem to loom large for Rick, it is my hope that the Hall voters overlook those eventually. The man's trendsetting and talent should outweigh the negative, and Rick James should be allowed to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Arts Center of Melbourne is a performing arts complex in the Melbourne Arts Precinct in Southbank, which is a suburb of Melbourne in Victoria, Australia. The center was constructed starting in 1973 and completed in 1984 when it fully opened. The center has a bunch of theaters and galleries and is noted for having not only the usual highbrow concerts and ballets from classical and jazz artists, but also having roller skating, a circus, and a movie theater. In the complex lies an exhibit for the ARIA Hall of Fame. ARIA, or Australian Recording Industry Association, is the Australian lobbying group for their music industry. They put on the ARIA Music Awards, which is their version of the Grammys. They also induct people into their Music Hall of Fame, simply called the ARIA Hall of Fame because sometimes a simple name is a good name. The induction started in 1988 and have been going on ever since except for 2000 when no one was inducted and since 2020 when Archie Roach was the last one inducted into the hall. I will assume that that actually has something to do with COVID lockdown restrictions in Australia for the past few years but hopefully they'll get back to putting people into the hall very soon. The number of annual inductees varies. For the last few years, only one act per year has been inducted. Go to artscentermelbourne.com.au for information as to when the organization does its yearly exhibit and what the times of operation are. We will, of course, put that link in the show notes. As always, though, check to see what the health regulations are because Australia really took those COVID lockdowns extremely seriously. Now, normally, I would tell you about someone who's already been inducted into a Spotlight Hall of Fame. This week, however, we are going to talk about somebody who has been humongously overlooked and has not been put into the ARIA Hall of Fame, but should be. Rick Springfield was born Richard Springthorpe in Australia. His father was in the Australian Army. He started out in his teenage years playing in a bunch of different bands with names like Zoot, MPD Limited, and stuff like that. He signed a solo record deal with Spamic Records in 1971. His debut album, Beginnings, was released in 1972. A single off of that album, Speak to the Sky, hit number 14 on the Billboard Singles chart and the album went top 40. 
Some radio stations boycotted his songs, though, once word got around, true or false, that his American record label, Capitol Records, was paying people to buy the album. In the 1970s, he also put out three other albums, gaining an image as a teen idol along the way. He also started acting at this point. He was in episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man, The Hardy Boys' Nancy Drew Mysteries, Wonder Woman, The Rockford Files, and, fun fact, he was in the pilot episode of the original Battlestar Galactica TV show, where he played a pilot who doesn't make it past the pilot episode, unfortunately. Rest in peace, Lieutenant Zack. We barely knew you. As the 1980s dawned, Rick was offered the role of Dr. Noah Drake on the TV soap opera General Hospital. At the time, soap operas were huge. General Hospital's Luke and Laura wedding episode was and still is one of the most watched TV episodes of all time. Rick said yes to the offer because he didn't think that the album that he was working on at the time, Working Class Dog, was going to do too well, much like his last couple of albums that kind of did okay, but not spectacular. In the very beginning, it kind of looked like it was going to happen yet again. Then, one of the songs on that album got red hot. Jesse's Girl was written by Rick about his lust for his friend Gary's Girl, who, for the record, is not actually named Jesse. The song was released in February of 1981, but it didn't hit the Billboard chart until the last week of March. As the year went on, the song became more popular, which also drove ratings up for General Hospital, as more people realized that Dr. Noah Drake on General Hospital was also the guy on the radio. More people bought both the song and the album. It took 19 weeks to do it, but finally, in August of 1981, just in time for MTV's debut, the song hit number one. His video getting played on MTV only kept the song around even more. It became Rick's biggest single of his career. Rick became so popular that he would work on the soap opera during the weekdays, then go on tour gigs with his band on the weekends. He would win the Grammy Award for Best Male Rock Vocal Performance and would have a lot of hits in the 1980s like Don't Talk to Strangers, Affair of the Heart, Calling All Girls, I've Done Everything for You, Human Touch, and a ton more. He's actually acted on General Hospital on and off for the past four decades, and he still puts out albums, and he still goes out on tour. Now, with all of his hit songs and hit albums, not to mention his Grammy Awards, and considering that he's had more hit songs and albums than, say, Men at Work, who are in the ARIA Hall of Fame, I don't get why Rick Springfield isn't in. If there's a technicality as to why he's not there, I can't figure it out. He released his first albums in Australia, and he's from Australia, so that can't be it. I'm a little confused. Especially when you consider that the Bee Gees were actually born in the Isle of Man, which is part of the United Kingdom, but grew up in Australia. And the Bee Gees are, have been inducted into the ARIA Hall of Fame for decades. Still, kind of confused. Rick Springfield absolutely 100% deserves to be inducted into the ARIA Hall of Fame, which is in Melbourne, Australia. And that is it for this episode of the Music Halls of Fame podcast. 
For more podcast episodes, which drop every Thursday in audio and video form, then please like, subscribe, and click the notification bell on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs>